If you have a Bible with you, uh, open to the last part of Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're still going through our uh, study of the book of Romans, and it isn't getting any easier for me. There's more in this passage that I don't understand than most of the ones before this, and I think next week it's going to be even worse. So um, I'm sorry, I've read a lot and I've tried, but, um, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. So I uh, sent out an email about this. Uh, if you're not on my email list, uh, please let me know and get on it. But using the, the Black Lives Matter movement as a uh, little teaser for the sermon, um, which, you know, probably falls under the fool's rush in where angels fear to tread category. But I wanted to find something that would take this conversation about the Jew, uh, the Jewish problem with the Messiah uh, in the first century church and bring it over into issues that relate to us more directly. And an issue that raises people's righteous indignation and shines a light on differences that people feel with each other uh, is ripe fodder for such a conversation because those conversations tend to expose in our own lives uh, where we trust in our own sense of goodness and righteousness and where we feel morally superior to other people. Um, so that seemed like a good idea at the time to use as an example. We'll see how that goes. But that's what we're going to talk about today is the way that we have the same problem with Jesus Christ that the first century Jews had with Jesus Christ, uh, which is um, he doesn't allow us to have our own sense of righteousness that's innate to us, but wants us to depend only on his grace. And so that's our subject. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask for uh, humility and open hearts and minds before you as we listen to your word. We're here because we want to know you. Uh, we don't trust our own judgment. We want to hear from you. So please use your word to speak into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to focus just on the uh, verses before the rubric there uh, through chapter 10, verse 4. The rest of the passage is Paul's argument that the Jewish people should have known better uh, than they did in rejecting the Messiah. And that's the part I understand the least about, so I'm not going to uh, focus much on it. All right. Read with me, beginning at verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written in Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So I read an article uh, in The Spectator, which I quoted in that email, uh, the British magazine, by a man named Theo Hobson. And the title of the article was, um, Racism is a Sin, and We Are All Sinners. Racism is a Sin, and We Are All Sinners. And for his audience, he realized that the word sin is archaic. Nobody uses the word sin anymore or thinks in terms of sins. But his argument was that if we're going to understand the problem that we face when we talk about racism, and if we're going to have any hope of communicating with each other or seeing any real change, that we need the biblical concept of sin in order to understand what's going on. Uh, And the reason he said that is because uh, much of the, the movement for justice with regard to race that is being discussed in the world today, disgust is a nice word for that, isn't it? Uh, talked about fiercely in the world today is uh, is not just a uh, movement to try to create better anti-discrimination laws because you know there's been a lot of progress made with laws uh, the emphasis of the movement has more to do with uh, entrenched habits of thought and attitude that are in human beings hearts as well as in their social structures but he said when you start talking about Uh, moral problems that exist in people's hearts, you're moving over into religious territory there. And when you start talking about how that might, how you might see things change in regard to sinful attitudes in someone's heart, then you really need the category of sin to understand it. Um, So he says that if you have a category of sin, that your concern about racism uh, is better diagnosed because what the Bible says about sin uh, is that it runs really deeply in us, right? It's not just a couple of bad outward habits or a lack of education or knowledge, but it's one of these attitudes that we have in our lives because of our rebellion against God. And we're broken on a very deep level when it comes to our attitudes towards other people or other groups of people. And so... Uh, it's not easy to fix. You know, I saw a, a uh, sign in the end zone today of one of the football games that said, end racism. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> I've been trying uh, in my own heart, but how? You know, how? Because it's not, it's not an information problem. It's a heart problem. But also, a category of sin helps as you try to advocate for justice in the world, uh, because it, it spares you the errors of self-righteousness. Uh, it spares you thinking that I am one of the pure people who's completely unaffected by sin, trying to see change happen in the lives of people who are completely corrupted by sin, which is an unrealistic view of human nature. Right? So uh, being able to speak out, uh, even with the Bible's words about injustice, without, without being at the same time self-righteous, and convinced of your own purity uh, becomes important if you want to be able to communicate. Right? So that was Hobson's ar- uh, argument that we need the concept of sin to realize that we're all sinners and that sin runs very deep in our lives if we're going to understand what's going on and have any hope of change with regard to these issues. You know, Because what you see, and I'm sure experience, uh, in various conversations in our divided culture now are, is the idea that some people are the pure, unaffected by sin and evil, trying to correct 
other people who are stupid and evil. And each thinks of the other that way, and we don't get very far in seeing any change in our own lives or anyone else's life. Uh, My side is open and loving and courageous and reasonable and caring, and the other side is devious and unreasonable and judgmental. Aren't they, though? Right? And that's how we talk, and that's how we feel. This is a window into our own souls. Uh, And it's a window into another archaic religious term that Paul uses uh, very often in this passage, which is the word righteousness. When our moral indignation is high, uh, when our moral condemnation is strong towards other people, it tends to you know, open a window into our own hearts about where we think our righteousness comes from. That is, where, what we think makes us a good person, what makes us presentable or acceptable in the right, in our own minds, with regard to our neighbors, and with regard to God. Righteousness is the Bible's word for that. It's a rich term, and it's an important one to understand. Because Paul's argument in this passage is there are two approaches to righteousness. One is you can look in yourself and say, I'm a good person. Deep down in my sweet little heart is just ever-flowing kindness. I'm, I'm kind to dumb animals. You know, I have I cry at sentimental movies. I'm a good person, you know, and God sees that, and surely God likes good people. That's one way of approaching righteousness. The other way is to say, I'm none of those things. The deeper you look into my heart, the darker it gets and the more troublesome it is. But I'm looking to the mercy of God to grant me righteousness as a gift, which I could never produce in myself. Paul says two different ways of approaching the question of righteousness. And he says, trying to be good on your own or become good on your own is a dead end. And that you will never get right with God that way. Or see real change in your life that way. Uh, But looking in faith to Jesus Christ to give you a gift of righteousness uh, is the way home to God. And it's the way to real change in your life as well. So that's what we're going to think about together today. First point is that you can't get righteousness on your own. You can't make yourself righteous. He contrasts in these verses two different things. A righteousness that's by works and a righteousness that's by faith that comes as a gift from God. You see in verse, into verse 30, he says there's, uh, the Gentiles got a righteousness that's by faith, but Israel, who was trying harder pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but didn't succeed because the law can't lead, can't give you righteousness. And then he says in the next verse, they didn't pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. So it's something they could be proud of as an accomplishment. And then in verse three of chapter 10, he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own, to establish their own righteousness. Now, The righteousness by faith he's talking about is just the Christian hope. That is that God, we're obligated as God's creatures to live a life of perfect obedience that none of us has lived. But Jesus did. And we're obligated by God's justice to suffer under his wrath for our failures morally. But we're not required to because Jesus did for us. And because of the life he lived and the death he died, uh, we're forgiven and cleaned and counted righteous in God's sight, welcomed into his sight. 
uh, we have a standing now with him uh, that we haven't earned at all, but comes as a gift. That's the Christian hope. Uh, so for the Jews, they didn't, like, they didn't like that recipe for how you're right with God. For the Jews of the first century, for the most part, they were attached to the Torah, to God's law, the old, we call the Old Testament, in a way that they thought made them morally upright and morally superior. Right? They'd been given this law by God better than anyone else had. What nation has laws like this, they said. And it was uh, beautiful. And it was a description of the good life and how we're meant to live and how we're meant to flourish. This great law that God gave them. But they took it to say, now that we have this law, it makes us morally superior. And now we can look at the repellent other condescendingly and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not a dirty sinner like they are. I mean, think if you know your Old Testament of the sneer on the face of a Jew talking about an uncircumcised Philistine. Ooh, right? Those people are gross. And the law had become instead of what God had intended it to be for them, an inducement to seek his grace, it became the way that they pursued a righteousness of their own, which is why they struggled so much with the kind of Messiah they wound up getting. Now for us, the Torah, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, kosher food codes are not usually what we use to establish our righteousness and tell everyone that we're good people. We use other things. Um, sometimes it's very trivial. In my neighborhood, we have a I guess everyone has a neighborhood app or neighbor to neighbor. I don't know what, whatever it's called. It's green. And uh, the way people talk about inappropriate recycling on the neighbor to neighbor app is astounding because they bring their fiercest moral judgment to bear on those who recycle improperly. If there were, you know, active cannibals loose in our neighborhood, they wouldn't write about it more dramatically than they write about uh, people recycling improperly. Right? Because this is my righteousness, right? This makes me okay. This makes me a good person. And they can do that on something that trivial. Usually, we uh, pick more substantial things to base our righteousness on. And if you think about how people talk to each other across the cultural divide and talk about each other across the cultural divide, you get more to the heart of the matter. Um, that we think... I am on the good team, and that is the bad team. I am a good person, and those people are not good people. And um, our language and rhetoric is very revealing about how we think about ourselves and about uh, our sensibility about our own goodness and how we think that somehow, on a moral level, we are different than the repellent other who's on the other side of the cultural divide. And uh, I don't think that's exaggerated. It's certainly not exaggerated about me. I do. I'm prone to this very much. My righteous indignation is a window into my own self-righteous soul. My self-congratulation is a window into my own self-righteous soul. And the more I think that the others are repellent and I am fine, the more trouble I'm in spiritually. And I think that's pretty clear for us. But the way this derails us so badly is that it's, it's legalism, right? To seek your own righteousness is to be a legalist. And legalism is always dishonest. It's always dishonest. You have to lie to yourself and lie to other people about how pure you are 
to be a legalist. Um, if you're going to feel morally superior, you have to, you have to quiet from the voices that are contrary to this curated notion of your beautiful, uh, good-hearted self. <laughs> Those things need to be suppressed and not talked about and not looked at so that you can feel superior about the one issue you've picked to feel superior about, right? It's always dishonest. Um, and legalism is always, also always superficial. You, you have to pick an issue that, that you can be good at, right? Like a, a law you can keep, you know, like voting for the right party. That's easy, right? Like it requires no moral rigor of me to vote in a certain way. And for me to feel superior because I vote in a certain way is a cheap approach to moralism and, and to righteousness, right? Like I feel good about myself because I pull the right lever. And you can't look at the rigors of God's law and feel good about yourself and superior to other people because God's law says that you have to love other people from your heart all the time, that you have to care about other people's reputation more zealously than you care about your own reputation. Who looks at that law and feels superior? You have to love God all the time with your whole soul. That's God's law. And if you look at that law, you don't think, wow, I'm pure and good-hearted and great, and those people are the repellent others. You can't, because his law takes that away from us. There's no way to be proud of yourself morally or self-righteous if you look at God's law seriously. But we don't. We just pick things that we're good at that other people aren't and uh, base our righteousness on that. And so we make the same mistake that Jews do and we stumble over Jesus. Because good people don't need a Savior like Jesus. Morally superior people, pure people, good-hearted people don't need a Savior like Jesus. Repellent people need a Savior like Jesus. And when Jesus came, he said... Guess uh, which of these camps I think you're in. <laughs> you're not in the pure, good-hearted, sweet camp. You're in the needs a Savior like Jesus to live and die for you camp. And when the Jews heard that, feeling morally superior because of the Torah, they said, how dare you? And they killed him for saying that. And we, when we seek to build a righteousness of our own, have the same reaction. I don't want or need a Savior like Jesus Christ. I want to build up my own righteousness. I want to feel good about myself for who I am and what I believe and how I uh, stand in contrast to other people. And when we do that, we uh, obviate the need for Jesus Christ. He, he, we could be Christians even if he hadn't lived and died for us is the thought behind it. So... You can't build a righteousness of your own, is the first point that Paul makes here. The second is that you can be righteous by faith in Christ. You can get a righteousness from Him. And he says this in the uh, fourth verse of chapter 10. It's kind of a famous verse that's been interpreted variously. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. The end of the law. That doesn't mean that... Uh, since Jesus has come, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. If you read the rest of this chapter, you see it's just chock full of quotes from the Old Testament that Paul's saying are relevant. Uh, he's not saying uh, murder's okay now and stealing is okay now and you don't have to be reverent anymore because Jesus came. He's not saying that at all. The word end, 
there is the word telos, which we use to describe the goal of something, right? The trajectory towards which everything is pointing. That all of the Old Testament law was pointing towards Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come. It was all anticipatory of him. And he has come and fulfilled it now. And he's saying that's what has been missed by people who are self-righteous and seeking to establish their own righteousness. So the whole story of the Old Testament, from the time when God spoke to Abraham and said, okay, my, my creation has rebelled against me, but I'm going to rescue them and show them mercy and fix the world through your family. Uh, he told Abraham, through your descendant, descendant, but also descendant, as Paul points out, uh, all the nations on earth will be blessed. I'm going to fix the world through your family. Then they go through the Exodus experience, which is, which is the picture of our salvation, being rescued from bondage and slavery and brought uh, out into freedom and to uh, God's new community. So then they're taken into the promised land where, uh, for a few days anyway, they have a high point with the kingdom uh, under part of David's reign, uh, picturing what a real king who could bring peace and justice could look like, sort of. Then they fail and they go into exile and then return from exile. And all of these things are anticipatory of Jesus, who's going to lead the true exodus for his people out of bondage to sin, uh, back into the promised land, which is the whole new creation in heaven, uh, and uh, a life that we live now in exi exile, waiting for that to happen. All of it pointed to Jesus. And if you try to understand it without reference to Jesus, you're going to misunderstand it. Like our passage in the gospel reading today in Luke 24, uh, Jesus went through with, on the road to Emmaus and said, showed them how everything in the law and the prophets pointed to him, the Messiah who was to come. And that's what Paul's taking up here when he says Jesus is the end of the law. He's the goal of the law for everyone who believes. So Paul says about his fellow Jews in verse 2, he says, I bear witness to them. They're zealous for God. They're devout. They're observant. They're orthodox. You know, they're not playing fast and loose with holy writ so they can get away with things. They're really serious about their religion. But even though they're orthodox and devout and sincere and zealous, he basically says they're lost. And that his heartbreaking prayer for them is that they would be saved. Isn't a pretty remarkable thing to hear the Bible say that people who are sincere in their religion and devout and observant in their religion and orthodox in their religion are not okay? That's, that's a very striking thing to say. But what he's saying is, in their view of themselves and their lives, Jesus Christ died for nothing, and they don't need help like that. And Paul's saying anyone who's self-righteous is basically living the same way, saying, I, I don't need a Savior like Jesus. I'm fine myself. Now, he's not saying they were wrong about the Bible or like they couldn't read the Ten Commandments right or something. He, you know, if they read the Ten Commandments and said, it looks to me like murder is wrong here, they weren't incorrect about that, right? They weren't stupid, he's saying. Um, but he's saying they're reading the law out of its context because they don't understand the depth of the demands of the law that expose us all. They don't, the law doesn't congratulate us. It exposes us and shows us that we need Jesus Christ. We need a Savior like him. And they were only reading it to say, 
don't murder. Well, I don't murder. And those people that do are awful. Don't steal. I don't steal. But those people who do are awful. Right? And that was kind of the conclusion that they'd drawn from the law. And Paul is saying, no, the, the law against murder, as Jesus said, means that you can't hate people. That you can't say about other people what we always say about people on the other side of the cultural divide without committing murder in your heart. So the law doesn't just congratulate you, it exposes you, he says. And because of that, you need a savior like Jesus. And if you don't read the law in that context, you're going to misuse it. You're going to misuse it. So they're orthodox, high view of scripture, conservative view of scripture, right? Um, and yet lost, Paul says. What that means is that you can believe the Bible is truly God's word and from him. And you can say things that are true that the Bible says and still pretty much be dead wrong about your religious opinions. Which is not very reassuring to me, right? But if you take the Bible, for instance, and you try to distill out of it its view of subject A and then say, this is the biblical view of this issue, and you don't relate it to Christ and what the whole story is about, then you're going to misconstrue what the Bible says. So take social justice. If you take social justice, think, can you make a case that God is concerned uh, for the relief of the oppressed, that the yoke be broken off the necks of the oppressed? Could you make that case biblically? Oh, yes. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard at all, right? God clearly cares about that. But if you talk about social, the problem of oppression as only other people's problem, and you talk about it as a problem that can be fixed externally through just education or laws, then you misunderstand God's law because the problem of oppression runs deep in the heart of all of us. And the only way that's going to really change in our lives is through the intervention of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, I've told you before, and with my accent, I'm sure it's not a big surprise. I'm a lifelong bigot. And Jesus is not, and he's not happy with me but I've got deep running streams of prejudice in my life racially. And I don't need more education about it, hardly. I mean, I, I do already way uh, worse than I know. You know uh, what I need is the hope that a savior like Jesus Christ can change a bigot like me. And that's the only way I'm going to change. All right. And so if you distill an issue and an ethic from the Bible, but don't relate it to Christ, you're likely not to think about it well. Or if you take, say, what the Bible says about human sexuality and the sanctity of marriage. Could you make an, a good argument from the Bible that there's a specific sexual ethic and a view of marriage that the Bible teaches? Yeah, of course you could. There's a lot said about that. Um, but if you take that just as ammunition in a culture war to criticize other people's sexual ethics, and you don't realize that every one of us is deeply broken sexually in our own lives, in our own hearts, um, then your idea of what will change somebody else is probably skewed, and your idea about yourself is very skewed. Because for them and for you, you don't see the need of Jesus Christ, you just need, see the need of better behavior. And that's not a biblical view of sexuality because it's separated from Christ. Or even on a smaller level, if you take the Bible and just try to distill out of it tips for successful living, uh, then you separate 
what's said in the Bible from Christ. And you don't see Christ as the end of the law that way. You'll hear people say, I like Jesus and I like the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like to get into all that doctrinal stuff about him dying and things. But boy, I really love the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. You say, well, this is misunderstanding that Christ is the end of the law. It's looking at the law itself as a self-improvement program. So the reason Christ is the end of the law is because the law can never make you righteous. The law shows you you need him. The law can never make your neighbor righteous, no matter how loudly you tell your neighbor the law. And the law can never make your country righteous. So what we have as Christians is a hope not in ourselves, but a hope in Jesus Christ. But with that, we have something that our culture can't imagine, which is uh, what happens in a church worship service, which you know, nobody knows we're here in Midtown right now. But if they saw what was really going on here, they'd be astounded, I think. Because you have people coming in from different sides of the cultural divide uh, with the same faith in Jesus Christ to worship him. And the first, about the first thing we do when we get here is we bow our heads and confess our sins. And we say, um, I'm not righteous. We don't confess other people's sins. We confess our own sins. And so um, people who are social justice warriors in Jesus' name, and thank God for them, uh, come in and say, I'm speaking in the, in the cause of righteousness, but I know that I'm not righteous and I need a Savior like Jesus. And so that's going to that's gonna affect the way I speak to other people. And people who, like me, come in dragging their bigotry behind them, come in and bow their heads and say, it's not okay to think the way that I think. I don't please the Lord with these attitudes. And we confess our own sins. When do you ever hear anything like that happening in our culture? And then after that, we listen together to the word of Jesus' grace, in which he describes God's righteous demands, his demands for justice in unapologetic, unequivocal terms, uh, demanding that we loosen the bonds of oppression in the lives of our friends and neighbors, uh, demanding that we uh, repent of our complicity in that, right? Unequivocally demands that in the Bible, uh, and yet holds out hope that people like me can be actually forgiven and actually can change, right? and that when we speak in his name, we don't speak uh, as people who are pristinely righteous ourselves. It's a real shaping influence on the way that we deal with the cultural divides. And then at the end of that, we all get up together and walk red, blue, and purple to the Lord's table together and say what binds us together, our faith in Jesus Christ, our hope in his righteousness is far more significant than anything that divides us. Now, where else do you see something beautiful like that in our culture? I mean, I love it every week watching the communion line. I may know more about your political prejudices than most other people do in the congregation, but man, I love watching that happen week to week. And when you have a community that's shaped on that belief, that confidence in Jesus' grace, then maybe there's a chance we could actually listen to each other when we disagree. If you've already been humiliated by becoming a Christian and admitting that you're shot through with sin and ignorance, you know, what you have to do to become a Christian, then listening to somebody else say that you might be wrong about something isn't as hard anymore, right? 
Maybe we could listen to each other if we believe our righteousness is not in our uh, cultural positions. Maybe we'd be less vulnerable to people who pander politically and who demonize political opponents. Because Christians will say, I'm not, I'm not down for you demonizing my fellow sinners <laughs> because I know that deep down I'm like them. Even where I dis- when I disagree with them on big things, I'm a sinner too. And uh, I'm not down for you demonizing people. I'm not persuadable by that. Because I recognize myself in the repellent other as a sinner. So that's pretty beautiful, isn't it? That's pretty hopeful, I think, for us. It's a gift that we have to offer to our friends for them to see that happening. Uh, Not just civility, but love uh, between people who are on different sides of a cultural divide. And it's only possible when we abandon the hope of having a righteousness of our own and seek the righteousness that's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's an old Horatius Boner hymn that says this, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, on this I stake my eternity. And that's our hope. Let's pray.